0: Okay, so the topic uh, for today as we're going through this is the Sadist Doctrinae, the Seed of Doctrine, uh, and we're looking at, we, we finished up um, on the Trinity and on Christ, and now we want to talk about man. Uh, what is, how does the scriptures speak of man? And again, the purpose of this is to provide you uh, the top three verses. There are a lot of verses. The scriptures are replete with teachings of man through description, analogy, uh, through prescription, all these sort of things, and you can draw inferences from this. But <clears throat> um, what I want to do is give you the top three clearest verses in the scriptures to show these things, so that when others question you, or if you have doubts or, or anything, that you could turn to these verses and uh, and be able to to combat these lies, right? So The first thing I want to talk about is original sin. And then after that, the the depravity of man. That is the effect of original sin. And again, there are many verses on this. But uh, one thing I want to talk about here with original sin is that there are going to be those who say that man is born, conceived and born, neutral. So that there is a... uh, It's called in Latin... Uh, A tabula rasa, which is a blank slate, so that you would be uh, clean. And then, from that neutral standpoint, then you have to either choose God or choose Satan, right? And then you're kind of in in the middle here. Uh, Along with this, people, so there are some people who deny original sin, saying that you're born without sin affecting you, sin that your heart is your soul is completely unaffected by sin. Um, From this comes a lot of different teachings. Uh, We've talked about this before, Pelagianism. Do you guys know what that is? Uh, The idea that you yourself choose God, that you have not been so destroyed in sin um, that you can then therefore make a decision uh, for your own salvation. You can save yourself. Uh, There are things like the sinner's prayer, Have you heard of this? Um, So the idea there is that you're free. There's no sin holding you back. And that you contribute to your own conversion, uh, whether in a small part or a large part or in totality. But there is some contribution that you're making to your own uh, prayer or to your own conversion. And so that the prayer itself is the means by which you're converted. It is your decision for God, right? Right. Uh, There's other things like the altar calls. Have you heard of this? So you'd have the altar call up front. Everybody comes forward. And then if you've lived a particularly bad life or a bad week, then you come forward and you rededicate yourself to God. And then there's a rededication or things like this. There's also a teaching that's come from this, which is called the age of accountability. Have you heard of that? Yeah. Yeah. So the Age of Accountability, this teaching is that, um, this false teaching I should clarify, is the idea that um, uh, you are born and you're not responsible for your sins, you're not held accountable for your sins or anything you do until a certain age. Uh, And we don't know what that age is, or we're never told. (laughs) 64 years old, yeah. That's a good Age of Accountability. yeah yeah so that you're you're held uh with without accountability for a certain time, and then uh once you're rational and reasonable, then you are held accountable, and now your sins are counted against you yeah Kelly. sorry mm. no uh I don't know why why they picked that sorry what did you say? Oh, <laughs> um, So, yeah, I know in the Lutheran confessions, <clears throat> Luther has this comment that he says, thank God that even a seven-year-old can recognize the church. I wonder if that's where they got it from. And they said, well, if at seven you can recognize the church, then maybe seven you're accountable for, for this or that. I don't know. Um it, it's, it's hard to understand why. I mean, why that's a magical number. I know seven-year-olds who are mature, seven-year-olds who are not mature, <laughs> completely immature. So it's like, well, why that age? And then it's more so, not an age, but a um, a disposition or an attitude that you would have to... That's what I would think. But um, anyway, uh, then then you have other issues. What about people who... Uh, have mental uh, illness, or their brain never develops past a three-year-old, right? There's a thing called, I think, like Smith-McGinnis syndrome, where the brain kind of stays at like three maximum. I mean, so the person could be 30 and still have the brain of a three-year-old. Like, what what happens there? Are they never accountable for sin or something like this? I mean, so it's very muddy, and you don't understand this. The difficulty with this is that there's no—it's all speculation— and there's nothing from the scriptures proving this or saying such a thing. In fact, uh, uh, David, the psalmist, says, Remember not the sins of my youth. He's saying, I sinned in my youth. I pray. It, it, he doesn't say, you not, I wasn't accountable for them. Just don't remember them, please. I was, I was ridiculous. What did I do? So. So this is what, what David is saying. Now again, there are tons of scripture verses, but I'm gonna show you the top three. The first one is on original sin, is Romans six, twelve. So Romans is in the New Testament. Uh <laughs> if you didn't know. Right. Of yeah. Yeah, and you did. And they may say, oh, well, it was a child that did it, but they still punish them and they them. Right, exactly. Right. Um, yeah. So that,
1: our own behavior contradicts
0: us. The, the idea, yeah. Yeah, exactly. It, it doesn't make anything, any sense in practice, right? How does it play out? But uh, Romans 6 here <clears throat> talks about. Um. So, let me let me just read the context before we get to verse twelve. But verse twelve is is the verse. So, so let's see. I mean, just all of Romans is good for this. But again, if you try to pick one, the third best verse, I guess this is it. Uh, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound by no means? How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Um, I don't know how you could read that, those verses there, and conclude that nothing happens in baptism that it's just it's just water that it's just a sign it's it's uh, i i i don't know why paul would speak this thing he continues for if we have been united with him in a death like his we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his sounds like baptism did something or changed something we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin Therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Uh, so what you have here is that the, there are passions or desires. And the, the important word here is the possessive, it's, um, that there are passions that are in you that are coming from it. <laughs> um, again, also, this verse never says the age at what this happens. At, at, at which this awakens in you, uh, but that the whole time uh, that you are are uh, um, you're subject uh, to this, so then there 's an exhortation to fight against the sin that is in you in, in, in its own passions, also uh, with baptism being at uh, in infancy, um, this is already talking about that in infants uh, this is Scene, these passions are in, uh, in the child. Okay, so that's uh, the first, or the, the third text. Uh, the second text is Romans 5.12. So all I'm saying here is I'm, I'm trying to prove that there is original sin, that there is a thing in you that is pulling you away from, uh, from God and that this is coming from birth, right? Uh, Romans 5.12, then we see. um, Let's turn to that. So it, it, it simply says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. So before before sin was described, sin existed. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. And then the free gift is not like the trespass for many died through one man's trespasses, much more have the grace of God and the free gift uh, by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, who abounded for many. And then it continues. Uh, verse 18 continues, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. So, uh, going back to verse 12 in Romans, it says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man. Um, so, that the, the, that the entire world is affected and infected by sin uh, through one that is inherited. So, um, the, the point is, is, when we talk about original sin, we're talking about something that has been inherited or passed down. And uh, this, the, the third verse, um, Romans six twelve is telling us that there is something in us. That there is something fighting uh, within us uh, to, to obey its passions, right? That's apart from you. That's still you. Uh, Romans five twelve is telling you then, when this happened. And it says, well, it happened when Adam sinned. This is when the hereditary disease of sin was passed down from generation to generation. Um, So through one man, he infects all of his children. Um, One trespass leads to condemnation for all men, right? And so this is then passed down. Uh, The the argument here is uh, against this is, you know, that's not fair, right? How is it that um, I'm guilty... Because of what my parents did. Well, how is it
1: that I'm righteous because of
0: what Jesus did? Right. That's yeah. Not fair either. Yeah. Exactly. So, so it's equally unfair to be justified, right? Um, but the, the 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 argument is like, how, how is it that a child has guilt, right? My my sons were born, and immediately, um, b- before I saw them, they were guilty of sin. They were guilty of sinning against God. They hated God. That was it, right? They needed a savior. They needed Jesus. And uh, so what Jesus did is he saved them. Um, but it wasn't because he, he didn't save them. Let me put it this way. Uh, they, Jesus forgave them precisely because they needed to be forgiven. Right? If, if he needs to forgive your sin, then that implies that you have sin that needs to be forgiven. So what, what's beautiful about the gospel uh, in this as well is that, um, well, we'll get there, but I'll talk about this is a reality uh, that sin is passed down. You have one man um, who's a sinner, who marries a woman who's a sinner. And what will they beget? What will their child be? A sinner. Uh, There's no hope, right? So think of it, think of this not so much as... um, I don't know, like a debt of the father being passed down to the son. I mean, that's, a, that's a, an aspect of it. But think of it more like a disease, right? If the father's a carrier of the disease, the son or the, the wife is a carrier of the disease, well, then the child carries the disease. And the disease is sin. And so man was never intended to die. It was not God's design that man would stop breathing and decay and turn to dust. Yeah, spiritual genetics. Yeah, it, Yeah. exactly. Like th- there's this deep no in corruption. At all. Yeah, so yeah, we're, we're not in control of that. We're, uh, we're subject to it. And regardless of the point whether the child had anything to do with it or not, it doesn't get you past the point of that it's there. Right? So you say, well, the, the child's innocent in this. Well, okay, maybe. Um, but But they have a problem. And the problem is that that they're they're headed towards death from the day of of uh, uh, from the days they see the light. So this is um this is another verse pointing to original sin, that this is coming from somewhere. There's an origin, right? Uh, original, you, you have to understand the the root word here is origin. Where is it coming from? So here it's coming from you. It's in you. There's uh, passions that are in you. How did that get there? Well, it's coming from Adam. It's coming from the first man. Now we're going to look at the final text, the first or best text. Uh, Psalm 51 verse 5. This is a beautiful text. Um, probably one of the most significant psalms apart from Psalm 22. Uh, I would say of the non-Messianic Psalms, uh, Psalm 51 is, is the most important. I should put it that way. Uh, the reason is because of when this is taking place. <laughs> Does anyone know the context of which Psalm 51 was written? It was after David's sin with Bathsheba and Nathan the prophet came him. Yeah. So if you look in your Bible, uh, this is included in the text as well. This isn't just editorial comments. Um, you look right next to, a, oh, we all have different versions, but right next to the, the chapter number, it tells you and it describes what this text is and what was the occasion that prompted the writing of this text, the context. It says, to the choir master. So David writes this song uh, to get a choir to sing it. A Psalm of David, when Nathan, the prophet, went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So remember that uh, David was, um, had slain Goliath, and then he became the king of Israel. And as king, he lusted after Bathsheba, um, slept with her. She was pregnant, had a baby, didn't want Uriah, her husband, to find out. So then David, the king, puts Uriah to fight in the battle, and he puts him in the front line, which is guaranteed death. You're going to be stabbed first. You're going to die first. So he puts him there, makes sure he's dead. And then uh, because he's dead, then he goes back and then takes Bathsheba and says, okay, well, it's a legitimate marriage. She just, uh, her husband just died and now I took her. Okay, you fool people. You're not fooling God. God saw it, the whole thing. He saw it. And Nathan pointed it out. He sent Nathan, his pastor, to say, I, David, I see how you're rationalizing this. You're, you're, you're working your way through this, trying to construct this and cover your faults. And then so Nathan gives a parable. And the parable he gives is he says, um, so imagine there's this one guy who has just a ton of sheep. And then there's this other guy who just has one sheep. That's his neighbor. And uh, in the night, um, the rich guy went over to that, his neighbor and stole his one sheep and killed his sheep. And I, and I love how he says that he even slept with the sheep because it was so dear to him. Yeah, that he, that he brings him into his home. And, and yeah, exactly. He, he brings him in. And then he says, now, David, what would you do in this situation? Uh, who's in the wrong? And then David says, well, that man, that man, obviously, why would he do that? He's, he's outraged. Like, give, give the man the sheep. He could give him all the stuff. And then Nathan turns to him and says, you are the man. That's you. In that parable, that was you. You are the king, you had everything. You could have had any woman, you could have had anything, and you took the only thing that this man had, and then you slaughtered him. That's you. The the weight of that guilt. And David hears this and he is crushed to the soul. His heart is destroyed and he is downcast. Um and then while he is depressed and in this Deep, dark despair that God knew this and this was not hidden from his eyes, and that um, uh, I can't scrub this away, I can't take care of this. What does he do? He writes this song, Psalm 51. That's the context. And this is why we sing this song in church every single Sunday. I, I don't care how long the service is. We'll never cut it out. <laughs> we'll never cut out these things. Of the service. Each part of the service of the liturgy is so meaning, meaningful and valuable. And when you understand the history of it, my goodness, it's beautiful. Well, we only say a small excerpt, and you'll recognize it when we get there. Uh, we'll pass the verse that I'm getting to in verse 5. But I just want to read the whole thing to you. Put yourself in David's place. He is in the shoes of, of uh, uh, put yourself in his shoes. He is in the place of one who is burdened by guilt, feels like he'll never be forgiven, uh, is, is guilty of a sin. Nathan gives him the absolution. He says that your sins are forgiven through the promised Messiah. This is amazing. Yeah.
1: Quick question. You know, with David having probably one of the most close intimate relationships with God, if anyone can hear God even says, this is who I am, please live, and all this. Yeah. It's hard to fathom how he would not know that God knew what he did. I mean, how can that possibly? I, I just never can get that
0: in my head. Yeah, right. No, this is true. It's, um, sin blinds people, right? Like fury. Like when somebody's really angry, they're belligerent. They, it's like their eyes go crossed. You don't remember things. You just lose it, right? This happens also in, in things with adultery. And, and Again, I'm not giving an excuse for this and saying, well... Therefore, it's not that big of a deal. because, th- No, it is a big deal. That shows you that sin had that much control over the person that they can barely remember some details or, or they forget God. If you think about this, this is a scary thought, but every time you've sinned, uh, you were thinking only of yourself. That's how it works. Every single time you send, the only person that you are that you care about in that moment is yourself, um, and and th- th- this is why it's so it's so evil. Like you just don't consider God's word; you're just considering what you want. You're not considering your neighbor; you just consider what you want, and so this is evil. I mean, this is a, a wicked thing. Yeah.
1: Well, that brings to mind then doing uh, a the, the devotional that God and God for pastors wanting to. Oh yeah. And it's, you know, it's wonderful. I'm talking about the, you know, start of wisdom is the fear of God. Mm. And, you know, when you're talking about generational sin and young people and, you know, I'm teaching, being a teacher, sometimes my kids were way more mature than their their parents. Mm. And all of a sudden you turn 18 and all these things are bad for you and aren't bad for you anymore. And it almost seems like, you know, when people become adults then they have that freedom to do whatever, and they lose that fear of God. Yeah. And when they lose that, then they lose track of, I mean, because you're almost like, okay, if, you don't, I mean, if you're doing this and you don't think God sees you, do you really even believe in
0: God? Right. Well, th- this, is, this is the way Jesus speaks before he dies. He talks about the, um, the promised Holy Spirit, and then he says that he will convict the world concerning sin because they do not believe. So that the root of sin is unbelief. Now, it doesn't mean that you've lost the faith entirely every single time you sin. But this is coming from a bad place. This is an anti-God sort of mode that you're in when you deliberately and willfully uh, manifestly sin right against your conscience. And then we could get into this, too, about sinning against the conscience, knowing what is right. Like There's a difference of degree. I don't want to get into this too much, but there's a difference. Sinning out of ignorance and then sinning. Deliberately, and Paul talks about sins of, of weakness that uh, he just kind of impulsively gave into, versus sins. Uh, Hebrews ten talks about sins that are done deliberately, that you know the truth and yet you go ahead and go against the truth. And then what what do the scriptures say? Hebrews ten twenty six. There, if you go on sinning deliberately after having received knowledge of the truth, there remains no sacrifice left for sin but a fearful expectation of the judgment of God, right? That's how the verse reads. I mean, th- that is frightening. So, th- that, so this, that verse guards against antinomianism, this idea that, hey, I'm forgiven. I'm j- I know this isn't right, but I'm just going to go ahead and do that. My go- read that verse. Write it on your mirror or something and look at it daily because you're not, you're not messing with something Little, it's not like a little dirt or stain. This is deep. This is from hell itself. This is from the devil himself, right? So, so when the scriptures exhort us today to put on the armor of God, I mean, it's a serious warning, right? It's a, it's a very serious thing. But, yeah. So, so we'll get into that too uh, in the in the coming um, in in the coming lessons. But re- regarding this verse, I I just want to read you the context here. Remember. Uh, David is convicted of his sin. He's crushed. He hears the forgiveness, and here's what he says. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Uh, Notice who is the actor in all of this. And who's active, who's passive, uh, have mercy on me. I'm passive, you are active. You're the one doing, having the mercy. According to what? Not my good heart, not my love for you, but according to your heart, your steadfast love. Um, you blot out my transgressions. You wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. You cleanse me from my sin. So that all David brings forth to the table is sin, iniquity, uncleanliness, and only God uh, brings forth what is pure. He goes on, for, because, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. What does that mean? He is haunted by this. He, he cannot go a day without remembering, having this in vivid detail, what's going on. Maybe he even saw Uriah, die on the battlefield and, and he's I don't know, but it's burned into his memory what's going on here. It says, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before you, before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Um, behold, now here's the verse. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me? So, how does David, this shepherd boy who slays Goliath, who does all these great and wonderful things, builds great, great things in Israel, leads Israel, and then falls so far that he does something so heinous and evil like this. How does that happen? At what point did David turn bad? And what does he say? In the womb. In concept, at conception. At conception. That I didn't become bad, I am bad. I've been bad, I've been sinful. So, I mean, this blows out of the water, the, the idea that we're born uh, neutral. I mean, he, he's not even claiming that. He's not saying that, look, yeah, you know, I'm a victim, people kind of bullied me and, and they picked on me because I'm short and blah. So therefore, I decided to get back. No, he just says, it's me, that it's my fault. It is my sin. I'm corrupt to the core, is, is his issue here. So he says, I didn't become it. I am it. Uh, in sin did my mother conceive me. So I brought forth an iniquity, and uh, 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 he's conceived in sin. Now, one of the responses here, it's a ridiculous response. People will say, oh, well, uh, David is talking about his mother. His mother sinned in, in, uh, in conceiving him. Come, really? <laughs> so he's, he's blaming his mom now. Uh, On top of that, he's confessing his own sins. Why is he going to introduce his mom at this point, right? What he's talking about is not the blame here. He's talking about the timing of it. That's what he's talking about. He's saying the timing is conception. The very moment the sperm and the egg joined, boom, I was destined for hell. I was destined for for damnation. And the Lord saved me. He goes on, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, You delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. You purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. You wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Something that David can't scrub away. Uh, He says, God, you say the word and I will be innocent. (laughs) Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Uh, the, the, The... the point there, the bones that you've broken, this is through his law, that the law is like a hammer that crushes your heart, that crushes you. It says, well, God, you crushed me through your words, um, but uh, give me me back the joy. Uh, And then he goes on. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. By the way, the word blot there is not like this. And then you go, right? <laughs> and then what can you still see there? <laughs> Sin, right? You can still see it. Rather, it's like this. Yeah, completely covered so that there's no understanding of what was written there behind it, right? So it's completely immersed in, in this and and. and uh, you, you can't figure it out anymore. So he says, Blot uh, out all of my iniquities. And then here's what we sing in church the, the offertory. Create in me a clean heart, O God. By the way, the word create there, in, in, there's a couple of words in Hebrew that mean create. Uh, one means to like fashion or to remake uh, or to like reform or shape. Uh, but there is one specific word in the scriptures that is very unique. And it's used in Genesis. It's bara, uh, which means to create out of nothing. So that's the same word that's used here. So, when he said, so he's not saying just, you know, put me back together, reform me, piece me together. He says, no, you have nothing to work with. So you have to create out of nothing a what? A clean heart. Oh God, that's what he's saying. Um, and renew a right spirit within me. Give me a new one. Cast me not away from your presence. What is he saying there? What does he deserve? To be cast away from his presence, which is what? Hell, it's damnation. He says, I I deserve that. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me, which is what he rightly uh, deserves. Rather, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Uh, There are actually the Calvinists um, will say because of um, uh, eternal election, they would say that David in this did not lose his faith. That while he was murdering Uriah and while he was committing adultery with Bathsheba, he was still a Christian. That's what they say. And the Lutherans and Luther himself and Lutherans ever, ever since then have said, no, he lost the faith. How do you know? He said so, that's why. He said, restore to me the joy of salvation. Did I have it? No, I lost it. So bring it back. Give me back the thing that I lost. So restore to me the joy of salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will, what? I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God, of my salvation and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. That's uh, the matin service begins that way and, and vespers. Um, that if I'm going to praise you, it's God who opened my mouth to praise him. Uh, he, he has to do everything. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. This is beautiful. It says, look, if there was a thing I could give up to make up for my sins, I would have done it. If, if I set my body on fire and that would have appeased God, I would have done it. Um, But he says, no, that still wouldn't have done it. I'm still not good enough for that. So um, you will not delight in sacrifice or I would have given it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are what? A broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. This is, the, this is the best. This is the most beautiful thing. Um, what, what is it that the Lord seeks? He doesn't seek this great sacrifice on your part. Rather, he seeks a broken heart that is repentance. One that says, I have sinned against you. Uh, I am indeed uh, guilty of my sins. And what does it say? God will not despise it. That, that is the, the best news ever. That God will not turn you away. He doesn't turn you away because of the magnitude of the sin, right? There's, but the attitude that's behind it to say, look, I'm broken. I'm contrite over this. There's nothing I can do about it. And the only thing that's going to help me and save me is you, Lord. You have to save me. And he will. He, he will not despise. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Then he concludes saying, saying this, do good to Zion in your good pleasure Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and the whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar, right? Uh, The purpose of the bulls on the altar is the contrite heart. Who cares? You could burn a thousand cows, but if you're stubborn and and proud in your heart, it's useless. Uh, Rather, he says, nope, what I I accept, what I'm looking for is um, to have mercy upon you. Uh, so th- this, is, this is the point. Psalm one five tells us not only that there is an issue with us and that it's fighting in us, uh, not only that it came from Adam, but also when it happened to us, when it came to us, which is in conception, uh, we're brought forth. Yeah. He would, he would be damned. This is, uh, that's a really good question. Uh, Lutherans have spilled a lot of ink on this. <clears throat> um, so if, if David had died in this state, uh, in impenitence, before Nathan called him to repentance, and he actually repented, he would have been damned and lost forever. We see this with Judas. Judas died in that state he felt sorry for his sins but feeling sorry for your sins isn't enough to make up for the sins right wondering is can we receive the holy spirit
1: and then the holy spirit
0: yes yeah 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 Saul did um, we we see this uh, judas we can't say that he's a hypocrite uh, or he never believed. There's no indication of that, but that he believed at a time, uh, but lost it. I mean, you can go through the scriptures and see that there are those who were, uh, were good and had the Holy Spirit and then lost the Holy Spirit. I mean, the prime example is Adam and Eve who fell away, right? Uh, after this, you see David who uh, sins. He loses the Holy Spirit. Restore to me what... Uh, t- take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of salvation. Uh, it's, it's restored. Um, Peter, uh, Lutherans have even said this with Peter. Uh, he denied Jesus three times. He lost this. And then um, it was restored to him. Right. So, so the difference here is that the Calvinists would say that, well, um, uh, David really never lost the Holy Spirit because he was saved in the end. Therefore, in this moment, uh, he never really lost the Holy Spirit. He still had faith. And um, we would say, well, there's no indication of that here. Um, Rather, what the Scripture says is that we we can... uh, No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. There are people who say Jesus is Lord and then stop saying he's Lord. Uh, Jesus gives the parable of the sower... Uh, that he sows seeds, it falls on the rocky soil, and he says they believed for a time, and then they fell away. Uh, that it, it's in the heat of the day, in the midst of persecution. Paul warns. He says, "Don't make a shipwreck of the faith that you have the Holy Spirit, and then you can lose faith." Right. So that what we need to do is uh, recognize that the Holy Spirit and faith are inseparable. Uh, because you cannot have faith apart from the Holy Spirit. And uh, you can't have the Holy Spirit if he's not giving you faith. So, um, <clears throat> yeah, so the Calvinists tried to, re- uh, uh, you know, fix this and say, well, David was still a Christian. And if he died in that moment in impenitence, he would have been saved. And the truth is, no, I don't, no. If, if that's the case, then the warnings of Scripture are What? They're empty warnings. Mm-hmm. Then I can be secure and say, well, once saved, always saved. If I'm saved, then who cares? But rather, it's the warnings that bring us back uh, to, to this. So you know, that's, I, I can send some more stuff on, on the discussion here of, uh, um, and, and what Luther himself writes and all Lutherans. But what's going on here with David? This is the, the main example, right? And this is where a lot of the, de- the debate happens. So... Yeah, good question. Uh, Yes, I don't know. Ladies first, Kelly. Yeah. So, you, yeah. So, so you can, uh, you can destroy your salvation. You can. I mean, you, you, let let me put it this way. You can, um, you can become impenitent. You can, and and if you make a shipwreck of the faith, if you fall away from the faith, it's your own fault. Um, if you're brought to repentance, it is only God's doing. And uh, th- this is the conundrum. This is the mystery that we have. So you say, well, God has, uh, well, why is David a Christian, and why is he in heaven? Well, because God had mercy upon him and brought him back. Why was David lost at a time, and why did he do all of these evil things? Well, because of David, because that's David's fault, right? So, yes, I mean, th- these are warnings. These are absolute warnings. Now, the, the comfort of election, of eternal election is this, is that God um, uh, will use all of these things, and put the preachers in your life to call you to repentance before the time is up. That's, that's his promise. That's his promise of election. And we, and we look at that by listening to the word and the gospel while we have it. If you despise the, the re, call to repentance when it's being preached, don't expect it to be there for you tomorrow. Because the scriptures say, what, today is the day of salvation. Repent now because you may not get tomorrow. So that... So, that whenever we read the scriptures, the urgency to repent is now, today. And I'm not going to put this off. I'm not going to let this linger. Don't let the sun go down on your anger, right? That's how urgent it is. So, yes, there is, I mean, and knowing that the Lord Himself is working through all of those warnings to keep you from falling right. I preached on this last year. This was, I think, during Lent. Uh, last year, what, and and the point here is that uh, there there's warnings and comforts in the scriptures, and God knows when to send you and speak uh, those words to you at the proper time, right? So the analogy I gave was like there's a, you're in a burning building, and there's like a small beam going to the other one, and you can't really see anything, or I don't know, you're blinded or something, and then a person on the other side is telling you. If you're leaning too far left or right, or going off on the wrong direction, and uh, that when you say, "Look, you're you're going too far this way," right, it it straightens you out. In the same way, this is how the law and the gospel work: that you're becoming too proud. Well, what do you need to hear? The law. You need to be beaten down. You don't. You shouldn't be proud. Like you shouldn't have a proud heart. Um, But those who are broken and contrite, what do they hear? The gospel. They need to be uh, told the gospel. So this is, this is the art of pastoral care. This is the art of preaching long gospel that you don't preach, right? So if somebody's leaning too much to the left, you don't tell them to go left, right? So if somebody's already beaten down and, and uh, uh, contrite, you don't say, well, God is an angry God. He's going to get you well, then you're going to destroy the faith. And you don't say to somebody who's proud, who says, well, I don't care. I can do whatever I want. God forgives me. Then you say, well, you know what? God forgives you. And they're going to fall off on the other side, right? So rather, the, the word is the thing that's keeping us uh, on the straight and narrow path here. Um, so yeah, good, good comment here. Yes? You stole my thunder. Okay. Thank God that David has me. Yes. Yeah. And he would
1: not see himself. Nathan, who was an old friend from back, he came to him and had the uh, courage to to call
0: it out. Yep. I uh, yeah. Seriously, that's that's. Uh, this could have went really bad. Yeah. 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 Exactly. And, and he, could have, terms, he could have. He could have done. Kind of uh, he could have did what Herod did to John the Baptist, <laughs> right? And said, "Don't tell me about my sin. I'm going to kill you." And he had the authority to do that. Thank God. Well, why, why, what's the difference between Herod and, and David? The Holy Spirit. Uh, did, Herod did that to himself, right? And, and he died, uh, I think he was struck down and eaten by worms or something. So, um, but David repented because of the Holy Spirit. So this is, this is the point. I mean, this is the connection here. And yes, the scriptures, uh, let me put this. Let me put it this way. The scriptures don't contradict themselves. The scriptures contradict you. That's what's happening. So why is it saying one thing and then another? Why is it saying that, hey, uh, those, no one can snatch them out of my hand? And then on the other hand, it says, well, you can fall away from the faith because it's contradicting you uh, uh, depending on which, where you are, right? So that those who hear this these words of repentance would then have faith and repent that the words create the repentance um and that those who are stubborn would be brought down and those who are broken and contrite would be lifted up this is what it means when john the baptist when jesus says of john the baptist that he comes to prepare the way of the lord lowering the high places and raising the low places (laughs) right That, that he's doing that very thing yeah That was, uh, uh, that was prior, right, that, that was a part of it. Now, the thing is, okay, so you have, I know I'm getting off track and we won't finish this one. I don't care. Uh, <laughs> uh, okay, we have tulip, right? Uh, T, right, this is the five point Calvinism. T is total depravity, which I'm telling you, we agree with, right? U is um, unconditional election, right? Um, so that's just for me uh, L is limited atonement. I is what? Irresistible, Irresistible grace. grace. Good. And then P is perseverance, perseverance of the saints. Right, yeah. So th- these are the, the distinctives of Presbyterianism of the um, Calvinist churches. So here's the, 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 the acronym, TULIP, a five-point Calvinism. And, and then there's a lot of uh, 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 variations of this or whatever. And variations within that um, uh, lapsarian and superlapsarian and all that sort of stuff. I, I won't get into that. But of this, there are some that we agree with. Total depravity? Yes. Boom. And next week, uh, we'll get to that. Unconditional election? Mm. Yes? We do. doing? Okay. Limited atonement? Sorry? <laughs> Who said that? <laughs> Did you say boo? <laughs> oh, you booed it. <laughs> yes, boo. I mean, come on. I mean, First John 2, 2, that... Jesus is the propitio- pr- propitiation uh, for our sins, and not just our sins only, but those of the entire world. Come on. So, uh, but limited atonement says that Jesus is the propitiation only for Christians. Uh, that's wrong, or for believers. Irresistible grace.
1: <laughs>
0: no, we don't agree with is that. that. For the great huh? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, all of the parables, yeah. The parable of the great banquet, the parable of the seed, uh, the, the um, parable of the ten uh, virgins. I mean, this is the mystery. God allows his grace to be resisted. This is unbelievable. He's, he doesn't allow creation to resist him. He says, let there be light, boom. He says, tells the storm, be quiet. And he gives it no option. It, it has to be quiet. But he tells you, repent. Uh, and, and believe in the gospel and he allows you to resist him. I don't know. God in his wisdom knows what he's doing. I trust him. But that's just what it is. That's what the scriptures reveal. He allows the blood of Christ to be trampled upon. That, I, it's mind-blowing to me. What they would say is no, uh, that these two go together. Uh, limited atonement and irres- irresistible grace. Well, why can't you resist it? Well, because he died for you and so that not one drop of Jesus' blood was wasted or, or Jesus didn't die for someone who's not saved. That's not what the Bible says at all. He dies for the sins of the world. I know that not all are saved. Okay, his blood was spilled for all, right? Um, irresistible grace, we reject this uh, and this is all throughout the scriptures. Um, perseverance of the saints. Do we believe this or not? Yes. Yeah, we do. The perseverance of the saints. And w- what's going on there, um, well, let me, let me clarify this. Unconditional election. Let me do this. The unconditional part we don't agree with. The election we do. So, I'll, sorry, I should have uh, been more clear there. Um, <clears throat> so it's half So we agree with two and a half of of the five points. Um, But the perseverance of the saints, we, we do agree with. And the perseverance of the saints is saying that at the very end, what God has determined is that he would ordain all of the crosses and trials and troubles in your life to bring about a blessed end. That is your salvation. No matter how much chaos you see, and in the moment you're uncertain, you don't know what's going on, but God has determined through his word before the foundation of the world that you would persevere and be faithful unto death, and he would give you the crown of life. He said so. That's Ephesians 1, the whole chapter. That. So that's what we're saying of the perseverance of the saints. Let me um, explain this. Unconditional election. The, The reason we agree with election, we don't agree with the unconditional part, because unconditional means it's apart from the means of grace. It's apart from the word and apart from the sacraments. That God has elected you somehow in time, apart from all of these things, and that the means of grace are kind of superfluous at this point. Rather, as, as the scriptures speak, these means of grace are the way that God has chosen you in time. He makes his decree in eternity, uh, and yet in time he reveals what his will is for you. So what is his will for you today? That your sins are forgiven? What, what does he want to happen to you on the last day? Well, what he tells you today, your sins are forgiven. Now, anything past this, we start to get into speculation and peer into the hidden will of God. And we start to say, well, um, am I, will I persevere? Right? Will I be elect, or this or that? What about my neighbor? What about this and that? Uh, We know the case with David here very clearly. The scriptures reveal to us that he dies in the faith. It also reveals to us when he left the faith and and everything in between. Um, For us, we are living one day at a time, holding to the promise of God. And we can be certain of our election because of the word, right? So we're not guessing whether we're elect. We are certain that we're elect. Why? Because you have faith. Uh, well, where did the faith come from? Who, who, who determined to give it to you? Now, the problem is going to come up what, when you say, well, what about someone who had faith and then lost it? Okay, leave. this is in God's hidden will. This is, he has hidden this from you. Um, but the purpose of election is not to, for you to peer into other people's hearts and figure out what's going on there. It's for you to take comfort in your own, in, uh, in, in the word of God for you. So, um, so, what was your question? Uh, whether we accept the perseverance of saints? Yes. Right. So, the, the, the verse where, and I don't know what
1: verse exactly, but where he he can allow us to be practiced. Uh, you
0: know, John 10, yeah. Yep, Yeah, th- I mean, this is, this is the hardest thing about election is because we want to fill in the blanks. And we want to say, we have all of the, the questions surrounding us. And we say, well, what about this situation? What about this one, this one? And uh, the scriptures don't say that. And well, what about one who's lost? Doesn't say it. Just God just did not tell you. So don't even guess. <laughs> if you guess, you're going to get in trouble and it's, you're going to ruin everything. Rather... You just hold to what he said. And what he said in the scriptures is that before the foundation of the world, he chose us in Christ Jesus. Well, who's who's the us there? Right? I want to draw... What I want to do is take a map and then circle who us is. No. Are you hearing these words? Yeah? That's who he's talking about. You. Do we have a systematic theology? Do we have a systematic theology? Yeah. Yes, we do, uh, but not from Luther himself. <laughs> so uh, what Luther did is he wrote a lot of exegetical work. So he's just reading the scriptures and writing on that, and he never wrote a systematic. I mean, the most systematic thing he has is the catechisms, right, the small and large. Um, but the, the definitive work on, on our systematics is going to be the Lutheran confessions. Uh, uh, yeah, specific uh, articles in there. But if you look at the very last article of the solid declaration, the very end of the Book of Concord before the catalog of testimonies, that is the work on uh, election. And it is the most beautiful thing I've ever read. If you're, if you're terrified about election or you have questions about it or think, well, this election kind of makes me nervous or anxious about my salvation. It doesn't comfort me. Well, then read that. I promise you, uh, it will fill your heart with joy. And by the way, that was an argument. The reason they wrote that was anticipating that there would be these arguments today. It wasn't an argument for the Lutherans. They said, hey, we're all agreed on this. God uh, founded our salvation in Christ before anything. But they said, but we think that it's probably going to become an issue. So they wrote it ahead of time. And then, of course, it did become an issue. Um, but yeah, I would, I would turn there, and I could send some things on that too. So we have a number of dogmatics textbooks and things, but where you need to turn uh, to read definitively on that is, um, is uh, uh, the, the Book of Concord. Because we have some Lutheran theologians who try to explain this. Um, let, I'll give you one example. We'll end here. Uh, one of these issues is called the Intuitu Fidei. Does anyone know what that is? Yeah. Uh, it means that in, in light of or in view of faith. So they say that this is how God chose and elected people. He said he, has all, he knows all things. And then he just looked forward into uh, all history of the world. And he said, oh, well, this guy's going to believe in me. Well, I'm just going to choose him. And this guy's going to believe in me, I'm going to choose him. So that God saw who would be faithful, and then he chose them. What's the problem there? No God. Yeah, yeah, God is secondary. And that faith then is apart from God's work, right? It's in me. So that then God is uh, responding to us. And that, that is a controversy that came up in, in the Lutheran church. Uh, actually, that was the first, one of the first big controversies here when the Lutherans came to the United States um, was, was that, uh, Intuitu Fidei. And, uh, the LCMS, before it was the LCMS, CFW Walther writes against this. And we reject the Intuitu Fidei, that it's not that God foresaw who would be faithful and chose them because of their faithfulness. Rather, God's choosing is the reason someone is faithful. And we're back to where we started. (laughs) I said, well, why did he choose you? because God loves you. I don't know. I, I don't know what other answer to give. So th- this is, and then, and then you get into the question of, well, why some and not others, right? Okay. Now we're, we're beyond what God said. But there are things that God has hidden from us, and there are things that God has revealed to us. Um, and what he's revealed is that you will not surprise him in the resurrection, that when you die... And you're in heaven. He's not going to say, "Oh, well, that was shocking. I didn't, (laughs) I didn't see this coming." All right, Uh, he he will know. He'll say, "This is it. This is what I planned for. That everything that happened in the world, even if you convert on your deathbed, God had ordained the world and put everything in such a way that you would be converted on your deathbed. That it's not by chance. It's His design. This is beautiful. That you will not." uh, you, you cannot destroy your salvation. On the one hand, there's a warning that you can, and on the other hand, there's a warning that you can't. So the times that you think that you're, you're firm in the faith, read the scriptures when they say, don't become proud. Uh,